0: Welcome back to this very special and unexpectedly ecclesiastical episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony, and I'm feeling a little lonely and perhaps nervous today. As our regular listeners may know, we're releasing three special episodes this month in which Jason, Stephanie, and I are each flying solo with a guest of our choosing. And I think this is a creative, innovative, highly forward-thinking tack for the show. It also happens to be the only way we could produce a show this month, as Stephanie is presenting mobile music box programs every day at schools all over the city. Jason has been recording a couple of terrific programs for our My Symphony Seat offerings. And I have been, I don't know, uh, I've been playing the flute, I guess. So, you know. Actually, more like normal, which normal feels strange now, actually. Tim, our producer, and I were just discussing that before we came on. But providing me with a great sense of comfort, confidence, and, of course, friendship is today's guest. He is a true Renaissance man, a musician, a scholar, and a priest. He is the pastor at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception on Broadway in downtown KC. He is a devout fan of the Kansas City Symphony and the Kansas City Royals. Please welcome Father
1: Paul Turner. Michael, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it's a great honor to be here. I've been following Beethoven Walks Into a Bar every episode since it came first came on, so I think your mother and I now are the only two who have listened to actually every episode so far. But, uh, but I've enjoyed it all it's been uh, it's been a delight to be part of it and uh, I feel the heavy weight of responsibility on my shoulders as a representative patron of the symphony to come in and, and be a guest for you today
0: <laughs> well uh, I hope uh, I hope one day soon you'll get to meet my mother and you two can uh, compare notes on your uh, on your favorite episodes and your your favorite moments from the podcast uh, and I will go hide somewhere in a corner as that happens. <laughs> Well, um, Father Paul, you are, of course, uh, a a dear friend of the symphony. And I know that you know many, many of the musicians uh, quite well. And, you know, first, I would just love to talk about, you know, music with you. Because, so Father Paul is a trained keyboardist, harpsichordist, organist, and has continued that passion uh, throughout his life. He has a, a studio there in his uh, in his quarters where he's speaking to us from now. So you know, talk about you know as a young person how you got really into music and and pursued it. And did you did you think at any point that would definitely be your path in life? You know, at what point did you decide to pursue the priesthood? Well, all
1: of that we want to know the backstory. Who is Father Paul Turner? <laughs> Well, thanks. Thanks for that, Mike. And I'm very happy to to share that uh, the the answer to the the questions about those twin passions for music and and ministry go all the way back to my earliest memories. I mean, all the way back to my childhood, my uh, my mother started me at the piano at the age of four when, when I was four, not when she was four. And uh, and this was something that uh, she wanted. Uh, both my parents wanted all six of their children to study they wanted wanted us to learn some music so early on they purchased uh, a piano a, uh, a used upright piano it was a steinway built in about 1900 and that became the the soundtrack for my childhood mom could play a little bit and she saw to it that that each of us did the the particular story I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about, about myself I, I think is of, of, of some interest. When I was uh, when I was four, I had uh, an older brother and sister who had already started grade school, and my uh, my mother must have told the nuns at, at the Catholic school that their her number three child was already starting to sound out words and try to see the connection between. Uh, words and sounds. So, I was learning how to read. And when the nuns heard I was learning how to read, they told my mother, stop him. When he gets to kindergarten, he'll be bored. So, mom sat me down at the piano on Easter Sunday morning and showed me where middle C was. And I've been practicing ever since. But within a few years, uh, I had a Another conversation with with her where we were talking about some of the leaders of our of our church and it became news to me that somebody like me a kid like me could actually grow up to be a priest so I was I was probably six or seven by this time and when I heard that I said to her, "Well then that's what I'm going to do and and my parents say I never really veered from either of those uh, decisions that I would keep Practicing away, and I had lots of encouragement for that, and I would pursue my interests in religion and I had lots of lots of encouragement for that so By the time I was in college, I was studying organ, and my organ teacher was a um, the daughter of a Lutheran minister, so she understood the 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 twin poles that that a person could could have. And she kept telling me that if I wanted to become a professional musician, that was possible. I just have to go to the right schools, pra- practice a lot more than I was, and that, that that was a path I could pick. But by that time, I was pretty confident that I wanted to go into the ministry, and that, that's what I did. So, through all those years, I've managed a way to kind of keep a hand in my music while I while I pursued a, a more formal career in, in the priesthood. Wow, that's amazing. So, I, I didn't know this about you, actually, that that really this
0: twin passions, as you described it, were really, really kind of developed simultaneously, uh, from, from a really early, early point in your life. And I, so I find it fascinating, you know, especially, um, you know, the tradition of music in which, in which we live at the symphony, uh, and, you know, the tradition of music that you live in is, is really pretty inextricable from, from the church. It's, earliest origins come out of out of the church and you know all all religions all cultures you know have have ritual that is has music as a thread you know within all of it so i'm curious for you you know now as as uh, you've been a priest for a long time you know how how does music fit into that work for you how does that passion translate to to what you do, you know, primarily, which is of course being a, a member of the clergy.
1: Yeah, the uh you're right that both these fields just work together. Music has always found a home in uh well, in the church and in the Jewish tradition, as you are most familiar with, Michael. Um we it has always been a part of this. I've 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 read treatises that that say there has been no civilization ever in history without music and no civilization throughout history without belief that the there these are just two parts of humanity that that seem to form who we are and they do seem inextricably bound so i i know when i attend a performance of the kansas city symphony it's a spiritual experience for me. I, I feel drawn into the music, and, and it pulls me out of myself. It, uh, it's one of music, of course, is one of the transcendentals, uh, as, as beauty will will uh, will appeal to us. So it it brings me into another sphere that I, I may not otherwise have, and that that experience of that kind of transcendental experience, I think any of us could have. At a good concert and at a good worship experience, or a private prayer at home, or private practice at home. There is there's something about the human spirit that gets tugged in in both of these these beautiful ways.
0: Yeah, I think I, of course, I don't serve my community in a religious fashion, obviously, but uh I do think very much about how, you know, how we can use music to affect other people, to affect the world around us. And I think and I think religion tries to accomplish a lot of those same goals for people, and so it's one of the reasons I really wanted to have you uh, on the show. Because I mean, I'm sure there are many uh, religious figures out there who you know also play music, but none that you know I've gotten to know so personally and and have actually been able to perform with. So I find that connection really, really uh, extraordinary. I wonder, you know, how can we? How can we use music more effectively uh, to impact people in in that way? Because you know, of course, we have the concert experience, which we all know. Um, and now, you know, the symphony is doing a lot, particularly during during the pandemic, to you know, sort of invite people to uh, to hear music in new in new ways. But you know, from the perspective of of someone you know who who is in the ministry. What what can we do differently in music to sort of give people those opportunities to have those transcendental
1: experiences with music? Yeah, you know, that I, I think the best thing the symphony does for us is live performance. So I'm I'm pleased that the music box has been put back on the trail. You've you've found some ways to bring live music to people. The, this podcast has certainly helped me connect with the orchestra during the times when when it's been been closed for for business at Hellsberg Hall. But but I think uh, uh, a point we, uh, you're making here about music is that it it has the ability to bring people together in harmony and you know kind of in a in a personal harmony, not just a, a musical harmony. When uh, w- w- when I play chamber music, for example, it, there is just something exciting and pleasant to me about having that kind of connection with with one, two, three other players, and we all just. Create something that's beyond what we could do on our own, and there there is something quite quite beautiful about that. So I, I think that you know, whereas in 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 religion and the practice of religion, we we encourage people to come to live worship experiences, we also encourage them to pray privately at home. The the, the same can apply to the world of music, where it's good to come hear music live. It is it's different from any other experience of, of, uh, of recorded music and I think it's good for everybody to create music in some way in their own lives I, I look back at my own childhood now and think that it was just a, a privileged uh, place for me to be where I could I could actually hear music play music contribute to music every day as as a kid and I and there are many kids today who just don't have that experience. They they don't have a piano in their home or a flute in their home, and so they they aren't making music. But but I think one way to uh, to promote it is to encourage people to give what gift they can. I've I've been privileged to to play with you, Michael, to accompany you, and yet I I know I'm not uh, the 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 best of of musicians, but I play well enough that. People from our orchestra have to listen to me, deal with me, and and agree to play with me. And uh, whenever I get to do chamber music with people from from the symphony, I have more fun than than anybody else. But but I give what I have, and I and I think that's that's something that everybody can do and should do. Wh- whatever musical ability you have, use it. Use it. Yeah, I think that
0: I think that's beautiful, and I know um, you know so many of the people that. That certainly come to our concerts, uh, do, you know, did have that experience, at least, you know, as young people of playing, playing music. And I think it is, uh, I think it's such a vital, uh, a vital tool, as you say, you know, to, to come experience music live and, and learn to do at least a little bit of it, uh, uh on your own. I'm curious too, you know, you talked about some of the things that the symphony is doing, you know, in the in the pandemic times and how, how the live experience is so important, but I'm, I'm curious what you've found in your role as a priest that, you know, is perhaps parallel in some way to that during, during the pandemic period, you know, how, how do you translate uh, that, any part of that live experience of coming, coming to church and worshiping uh, into, you know, something that can happen safely during the pandemic and, you know, what, what's, what for you, you know, has worked uh, or what maybe hasn't worked?
1: We are all finding our way, and this is worldwide and not just with Catholic priests. It's with every minister of, of any denomination. We, we are all suddenly having to do what we thought we would one day do. Someday we'll work on doing a live stream. Someday we'll, we'll work at expanding the electronic outreach, but, but the pandemic has really put us to work on that. So we have had uh, we've had some uh, very positive experiences of helping people connect back to us by live streaming our our Sunday services. That has that's been very positive, but it still isn't the same as actually being there in the room. So we as you know, when when you're watching something at home, you can be doing two or three other things at the same time. When you're in a church or when you're in a concert hall, you tend to give it all of your attention. And even though we say that the musicians are the ones who perform the concert, uh, it's the people who are also required to participate through their silence and and attention during, during the concert. And in a church experience, yes, it's the ministers who have the speaking roles, but we rely on everybody to participate in some way. And of course, the difference in, in churches is we're expecting everyone to sing. So when we do live stream at home, I don't know how many people are actually singing at home. Some probably do, but I think most of them would not. I think it's it's just easier to sit and watch what's going on. So we've we've uncovered a great hunger and a desire for the in-person experience, which uh, which is has been very affirming to us. We've also uncovered a desire for the Sunday experience. There's something about this time, this day of the week that means something to people. So, even though they could come to church on a Wednesday or a Thursday with fewer people there, they don't. They would rather stay at home and tune it in on a, on a Sunday and somehow honor the time along with, with the, the service.
0: Yeah, I, that's something I hadn't thought about. You know, you of course, Everyone sings at church, and you know, do you sing at home while you're just watching your computer? And you know, we should try that at the symphony. We should have our audience sing at the symphony. Make it make it more participatory that way. I think that would be really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, as as you mentioned, I was uh, you know raised in the in the Jewish faith. Um, although I've been in. I've been in more churches than synagogues in my life uh, to be perfectly honest and and I think you know regardless of your faith there's something spiritual there's something you know awe inspiring about just being part of a service in a church or any you know, concert hall or you know any space like that cannot be replicated and and I imagine you know you and I in that way are are struggling with a lot of the same things you and and the symphony, all musicians, are, are wrestling with a lot of those things, and it's just been it's been interesting to see the the solutions and the you know the ad, the adaptivity of people, and yet you know there are certain things that that we just cannot replicate. But I, I so I want to I want to change gears a little bit because you, you in addition to many uh, many things, are also a very well traveled man and a, uh, incredibly, uh, learned person as well. And I'm, I'm so curious for you to talk a little bit about some of your international experiences, particularly your travels to the Vatican and, um, anything else you'd be interested to share because you've shared stories with me so many times that are just, uh, are fascinating. And, you know, I want, I want all of our listeners to have a little bit of this perspective that you have.
1: Thanks very much, Michael. I, I was, uh, privileged as a, as a young priest to have a few years to work on a, a doctorate in theology. And, uh, and I did that study in Rome at the University of San Anselmo, so this was in the early 1980s. And since then, uh, since getting my doctorate, I've, I've continued in the field of research and writing, especially in the field of worship. That's kind of liturgy or worship is, is more my, my field of specialization so with with that i 've joined an international uh, group of of people who specialize in this field and we we meet every other year somewhere on the planet this uh, This was supposed to be our summer to meet at Notre dame uh, interestingly enough but with the with the pandemic that 's going to be a, a virtual meeting. At Notre Dame, it's the other gold dome from the gold dome that, that I have here at the cathedral in downtown Kansas City. But in two years, the meeting will be in Vienna, so it it uh, it just moves around uh, from from one place to another. But that has put me in touch with uh, a lot of specialists from different countries, different different faiths, and uh, in other branches of of Christianity. So that that has helped a lot. Uh, the other the other group that I have done some work for is the International Commission on English in the Liturgy. This is a, a commission made up of 11 bishops from different English-speaking countries who have the responsibility of reviewing translations of the worship words we use uh, in, in any Catholic service. All of those uh, prayers come out first in Latin. They still do to this day and then specialists work on translations. And once it reaches a certain level, these 11 bishops from around the world have to get together and finalize what, what they're doing. Um, I work as a kind of secretary for that group. When the, when they meet once or twice a year, uh, I join the little band in Washington, D.C., or wherever it is that that they're meeting. And uh, years, about 10, 10, 15 years ago, they're they were especially involved with working on the revised English translation of the Roman Missal. Now, this might have some interest to symphony fans because this is where you find the words for things like a mass the Curiae, the, the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, even the Requiem Mass, the, the principal. Uh, movements that you might hear in a piece of music, y- you can find most of those in in the missile. But all of this was going through a revised translation in English, and uh, I became kind of the the flavor of the month during that time, uh, being being asked to speak on the translation to different groups, not just around the country, but literally around the world. I, I think I spoke in. Eight different countries that year to help people get ready, including the country of your beloved wife, Michael. But I was in Australia several times, uh, and uh, most recently had gone back there for some other presentations on uh, on Catholic worship when COVID broke out. So uh, I had to cut short my uh, visit to Australia in order to get back home and figure out what on earth the world was going to be like at this point. So I've been I've been privileged to to get around, to study different languages. And, and throughout all of this, the, the blend between music and my research and, and these, these uh, other areas have, have always come together. I, I felt that my, uh, my abilities as a, as a musician had prepared me to talk with people about how you integrate music effectively at worship what changes in the translation were going to mean for different musical settings that we would use for common worship, how how all of this would, would fit together. So, to this day, I still do a considerable amount of writing, a uh, considerable um, amount of lecturing on, on those topics.
0: So, I have to ask, is there a separate
1: translation process specifically for the Aussies? Well, the Aussies, as you know, have a few <laughs> unique words. Uh, I will tell you, well... <laughs> One of the uh, once in a while at at those meetings of you can imagine ele- people from eleven different English speaking countries there are going to be some words that just sound differently in one country than in another and uh, there is a a line in one of the letters of Saint Paul where he he speaks about our our connection with one another and with Christ as being rooted in love well you cannot say that in Australia you, no, you, cannot. you cannot it has a totally different connotation. In Australia, yes. so even whenever that word would come up as a proposed translation around the table, the Australian bishop would have to raise his hand and remind everybody, "We we just cannot do that." So so uh, there and then you know, they have uh, the ability to change things country by country if they wish, but this is how how we learn more about our own language. It it, it changes considerably. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So uh, this actually
0: leads me to a really circuitous segue, but. I know you're a baseball fan as well and we'll we'll talk about that. But of course, you know, years ago, I don't know how it came up. Maybe it's when we it was probably when uh Sandra and I first, you know, went to a baseball game and normally we'll go, you know, to the Royals at least at least a couple, three times a year. And, you know, of course they sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game and you root 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 for the home team. And the first time she heard that, she was just horrified. She was yeah. like, What are what are you all singing about this? Yeah, for?
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, so, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I love about you is you love your baseball.
1: Yes, I do. And
0: uh, and I, I know that you've told me uh, you spend a whole lot of your unscheduled time during the
1: baseball season at the K. Is that right? That's correct. I, I try to divide my free time in Kansas City between the two Kauffmans, between the Kaufman Center downtown and Kaufman Stadium uh, the the ballpark. Yeah. So I uh I do enjoy enjoy baseball. It was something my my father introduced all of us kids to and uh, we all still are all six of us are still baseball fans to two different degrees. Did you did you ever play at all? No, I'm a terrible athlete. Just awful. <laughs> and uh and even even in high school uh basketball was kind of our big deal at the high school that that I went to. It was just, I was just awful and and the coach knew it. So, he assigned me and a a friend of mine to become the statisticians for the basketball team. And I kind of got my niche, my high school niche with with that. I I lettered in statistics for for the – my athletic letter is is actually uh, for – my high school letter is is for being able to keep stats. So, to this day now, when I go to a baseball game, I go with with my uh, buddy, Mike Matthews, and we – we score the game ourselves. We've got an app on the iPad and we keep track of every ball, every strike, every pitch, all the outs. We look at the charts. We kind of figure out what is going on. We we can see the game a whole lot more on paper, uh, actually on the screen, than than we do just on the field in, in front of us. One of the other things we do to cycle back to a musical conversation here is that several years ago, Mike and I started paying attention to the National Anthem, which is also sung at at every game. And we have a rather narrow view of what that National Anthem should sound like. We like it straight, the way it was written, without a lot of flourishes on it. And we came up with a chart – we a, a grading chart for everybody. So we have been grading the national anthem at every ball game that we go to and posting them on my website, so anybody can see how they've done. We make the criteria very public. Um, you know, if the, the biggest uh, the biggest sin you can commit is too much or ornamentation on the melody. So one of the one of one of our guiding questions is is the singer drawing more attention to the flag or to the singer so that they can lose three points right away. We spot them 10, but they can lose three points right away. If there's too much of that, they can lose points on pace. Do they remember the words? Do they stay in the same key? So all of the, all of this we, we keep track of and, and, uh, and, and post on the site. Uh, I remember uh, Aram Demergen being horrified that we had scored joyce DiDonato so low when when she performed. But it had more to do with her <laughs> ornamentations, not with the style of her beautiful voice, which is uh, which is incomparable. But uh, but that's wow. one of the ways I try to draw my uh, my music and my and my baseball love together. Uh, this is amazing. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, first
0: of all, I, I didn't know that you formally. Scored uh, anthem performances, and we'll we'll come back to that in just a second. But first of all, I I want to say how incredibly appropriate it is that the future priest lettered in essentially <laughs> record keeping, <laughs> because of course the Catholic Church is famous for its record keeping, and uh, and the fact that that was your athletic specialty is. I almost don't know what to say about it. I mean, it speaks for itself. It's it's fantastic, but but also uh, I I would say there's an there's an interesting um, conflict that you raise here because you know I, I know that you uh, you have a particular affinity for baroque music when you play, and of course, so Father Paul owns his own harpsichord, which is a uh, something that many keyboardists cannot say and. Um, as we've said, you know, over and over, he is a really exquisite performer on the harpsichord, which, you know, in the Baroque tradition, you're expected to add a lot of ornamentation. So I find it, I find it sort of an interesting dichotomy that you appreciate ornamentation in your music, but not in the anthem. And I understand what you're saying that, that, you know, that you want the, you want the, the song to be, you know, about what it, represents and not, you know, draw attention in that particular way to the individual. But I think it's interesting. And I, it also makes me think of how how must you have felt when you heard, I think, was it Lady Gaga who sang the anthem at the last Super Bowl in like six different meters and 12 different keys?
1: Yep. That yep. must have gotten a very low score. Would not have gotten a very high score. And we, <laughs> we make our criteria public. Anybody can see what, what the criteria are. If they want a high score, they know what they need to do. But it's, uh it's a rigorous system it it is uh but you i, I love it that you raised this uh this question about the two versions of music the improvised music and the and the play the page music and uh and that we've we've kind of landed on the um you know when it comes to the to the anthem let's let's be more traditional with that but uh i I often think about this. Michael, uh, about how you take music that's on the page and make it your own. When I'm talking with other priests about how to take the prayers in the book that they use at mass and make them their own, you have to kind of get inside of it. You you know, as a musician, you can play every note the same way as some other musician, but it'll sound totally different because of how you have embodied it. You've 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 made this yours, and uh, and I think. That's one of the one of the challenges we have as as Catholic priests to make the the prayers our own, the prayers that appear in the book. But I have found that my skills as a musician have helped me in my skills as as a priest when it comes to that that particular area of uh, of, of of my work. That's that's really interesting. So okay, I, so now I want to
0: ask you. Then you know, for me as a performer, you know, and of course my you know my interpretation is always informed by context and, you know, my history with the piece and knowledge and studying. But, you know, from from one day to a next or from one audience to the next, um, that moment will very much affect, you know, my interpretation from one day to another. So do you feel that as well when you're when you're reciting a prayer or giving a sermon or whatever it is that you're you're doing in the context of worship? Do you find that from day to day you can you can deliver the same text, but in a in a way that's inspired somehow differently
1: by the moment or the people who are listening. Absolutely, yes. The uh, there are some some prayers that that uh, we recite once a year. There are others we recite daily, and some that uh, that obviously would fit in the middle of all of that. But sometimes I find if I'm offering a lengthy prayer, this the same one over a period of days, I may try to. Commit more of it to memory from day to day because it helps me embody it uh, uh, a lot better. And yes, how I'm feeling, how I sense the room, all of that is going to make a, make a profound impact on it. I can remember as recently as Holy Thursday, Monday Thursday, just shortly before Easter, close to the time of uh, a Seder meal in in the Jewish tradition. We had uh, an especially beautiful Mass here at the cathedral, but I could I could just tell there was something unique about the way people were attentive to, to all the prayers, they were participating in a different way, even in their silence. You could, you could tell there was something unique, and then that has an impact on how I enunciate my words and, and, and speak them. When I preach, I am probably over-scripted. I, I write out almost everything I'm going to say in public when, uh, when I preside for a Mass at, at the cathedral. But I do f- know that I'm relying on musical principles when when I preach. I'm I'm thinking about rhythm, about pitch, uh, about volume. Uh, all of this is going to have an impact in how I deliver a line and how I try to communicate something that that I feel is is important to me. But I know I'm able to do more of that. As a musician, because I just understand some of those principles maybe better better than somebody else.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool, and I'm sure there's so much, um, you know, scripture that you read that's you know familiar to everyone there, and yet, you know, they're they're there to hear you deliver it like a musician, and I just find there's to be something really interesting about that that sort of parallel process of you know interpreting and communicating through, you know, we play music that's that's very often familiar uh, to, to our audience. That's what they want to hear the most. And I, I suspect it's, you know, it's similar in the worship environment as well. Well, uh, Father Paul, I would sit here and continue to talk to you uh, until all the batteries ran out on our devices. But you being, if you'll forgive me, You have to be the number two fan behind my mother of (laughs) Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I think you're probably right. You have to be. Uh, But as the number two fan of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, you know uh, almost better than anybody that we ask all of our guests two uh, very important questions. And they are, of course, if you uh, were to wander into a bar and sit down next to LVB himself, Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven, what might you want to ask... Beethoven. And secondly, while you're asking Beethoven something, what what would be your preferred beverage?
1: I have answers for both those questions. And before I give them, I'm going to say I'm going to shoehorn in another point I want to make, and I want to do it at this stage because I want you to know this is something that was my idea and not yours. I am not only a patron of the symphony for the past 35 years, I think I've been Coming to concerts. I, I've even gone to the Kansas City Philharmonic back back in the day. But over the last few decades I've also been a donor to the symphony. And I wanna thank the other donors who are listening to the to this podcast, because I know that my little gift can't do it without all of your gifts. But I and those of you who don't donate, I would like you to think about it because there's a wonderful feeling that comes with giving. You you just You just feel like you're a better person when you're giving back. These musicians are giving a lot of themselves in order to enhance our appreciation of what we are doing. And this is our way of connecting back to them. Well Father Paul, uh, you should know that uh, very few people have ever
0: accused me of uh, having an idea myself but uh, your, <laughs> your words are uh, incredibly kind and um, you know I just want to say that everyone who who comes to a concert uh, comes to one of our you know our free mobile music events or a free event in in the hall. Anyone who chooses to give us money, um, at whatever level you know they're involved with us, uh, just the the act of being there, the act of participating with us, uh, is incredibly inspiring to me, and it's what keeps me you know trying to get better at my music making, at playing the flute. It's what, uh, as we discussed, you know, inspires my interpretation of a piece of music from day to day. That I might have seen uh, a thousand times. So, thank you uh, so much for being, you know, a friend to the symphony, a friend to uh, so many of the musicians personally, and for your gifts, and just for inspiring others to do good things in this universe. Because I think that's what it's really all about. Whether you're a priest or a musician, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't. I don't really know. You're the expert here. I'm not the expert. Um, you're stalling now, so we got to get back to these two <laughs> vital questions. What would you ask Beethoven, and what would be your preferred
1: beverage? These are excellent questions, and I have a two-word answer for both questions. Ooh. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> this is what it depends on. That First of all, it depends on which bar. Now, if... If I'm going to something like the, a wine bar, the Tannin wine bar here downtown, I'm probably going to ask our local sommelier f- to recommend a German wine, a red, and let me share that with Mr. Beethoven. I would, I would rather share a, a drink with him. I guess another way to answer the question is, whatever he's drinking, I'm drinking. That's, that's how that, that would go. But I would, I would recommend we get, a, we get a good German wine and he could tell me a little about that. But if it were another bar, like a bar and grill, like the Coif, a little bit north of me here at the, here at the cathedral, then uh, I would get a Casey Beer Dunkel, because they have that on draft. And that would, I think, Mr. Beethoven and I would be well set for that. And then in terms of what I'd ask, it depends. So if, if, I'm, if I'm there wearing my musician hat... I think I would ask him about his last piano sonata, Opus 111. Two friends of mine recently told me I should learn this piece. So I did. I, I spent some time last fall working it up. And again, I'm not virtuoso, but after some months, I got it to a point where I could convince people that I can play Beethoven. So I, I having worked through that, I would want to ask him some things like, did you really intend to invent ragtime? Or is that just coincidental that one of the movements, one of the variations in the Arietta uh, sounds like Scott Joplin wrote that, that particular piece? Or uh, the other question about that would be the triple trills that he has near the end of it all. Did he have more fingers than some other human beings have? Because if I have six fingers involved with playing those trills, and I'm still supposed to pound out a melody with the remaining fingers that are there, what what superhuman qualities did he really envision for this? So that would be, if I were wearing my musician hat, I think I would go after Opus 111. If I'm wearing my priest hat, I think I would sit down with him. This probably would work better over that beer. I would say to him, tell me about that Heiligenstadt Testament. Here you are, Years, years later, after having written what was virtually a suicide note, 32 years old, deafness is sitting in on you. It was one of the most despairing moments of your career. And yet from that, you were able to pull yourself out. Tell me how you're reflecting on that after all these many years. Those would be, that's how I would handle a conversation with Mr. Beethoven. Those are excellent questions and
0: excellent beverages and I love the answer, it depends, and that what you drink and what you ask all depends on context. And, you know, I had a, I had a professor in college who was famous for giving the answer to everything. The uh, context and ambiguity was the answer to all questions. I think, I think you and he would be fast friends in that regard. Great. Well, uh, terrific. We have been so delighted to have you, and you know that the final, uh, final right— of being on Beethoven walks into a bar is, of course, the opportunity to recommend some listening. So, do you have any particular uh, listening you would recommend? Well, for uh, everyone, uh, as we wrap up today.
1: Sure. I mean, I'll I'll tell you what my my habit for listening is. I subscribe to one of the uh, music uh, programs online, so I can listen to albums as they are released, and uh, and I enjoy that. I enjoy kind of listening to whatever's. Sp- Fresh, uh, they they aren't necessarily the ones I would pick, so they're they're kind of random as they come through. But in the last week, there were two albums released that included works by Beethoven. So let me go ahead and, and recommend those. One of them uh, features Theodore Curensis and Musica Eterna, and it's a performance of one of your favorite works, Michael Symphony Number no. Seven in A Major, which has that delightful flute solo. And uh, it's a it's a wonderful recording that uh, I think people would people would enjoy. And then just coincidentally this week they released the last three piano sonatas by Beethoven performed by Sunwook Kim. So both those are proving to be good uh, good listening material for me N- not everything they, they give me is romantic era based, but I just happened to get a couple of Beethoven list listings this week, and thought you you and your listeners might enjoy that.
0: Well, that's beautiful. I always enjoy Beethoven, and Beethoven 7 is absolutely uh, probably my favorite of his symphonies, uh, so I'm going to have to check out those recordings, and we'll, we'll put them in the show notes as usual. Well, Father Paul, it's tremendous uh, to be with you. I hope uh, next time it's in person, perhaps with a beverage, and we'll just see what the what the circumstances dictate perhaps we'll roll on down to the Quaff in your neighborhood there and have a, have a beer or we could go over to Tannins and have some wine or we could have, you know, cocktails on your rooftop or whatever, whatever the moment calls for. Thank you so much uh, for your time today, for your gifts, for being a generous and talented person, a pillar of the community and, uh, most importantly to me, for loving the symphony,
1: Thank you, Michael. It's an honor to be here., uh, people on the podcast, you're all welcome to the cathedral at any time. We are the gold dome on the downtown skyline. Please come on over and uh, and pay a visit. If you're a friend of the especially if you're a friend of the symphony, you're a friend of the cathedral
0: well, in our next episode, we'll be talking with a man whom I first met almost twenty years ago at the Tanglewood Music Festival when he was a precocious young clarinet playing phenom. You know him today as principal clarinet of the Kansas City Symphony. Of course, I'm talking about our friend and colleague, Raymond Santos. We'll talk about that fateful summer in the Berkshires, perhaps regale you with a few stories about late-night group outings to friendlies for a burger basket and a happy ending Sunday, learn about the quest for the perfect read, and much, much more next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.